Well, welcome to this Thursday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, checking in for another opportunity just to have a dialogue with you and with yours about the many issues that we're facing in the world today. You know, I, I want to start with some really good news. I realize Good News Friday is on tomorrow's program, but some really good news regarding a pastor who gained notoriety about, uh, well, maybe a little over a year ago for being that pastor who was not going to uh, back down from the mandate issued to him by the government uh, during the COVID crisis, the pandemic, as it were, uh, to not preach the gospel, not have church. Um, Pastor Arter Pulowski of Street Church and the Cave of Adullam in Calgary, Alberta, uh, stood up to Canadian authorities for well over a year. He actually came to the U.S. and said, hey, look, if this is happening here, uh, it's going to happen in the U.S. It's only a matter of time. And he was a, a huge inspiration for churches like uh, uh, Grace Community Church, John MacArthur's Church, and uh, Calvary Chapel, or Godspeed Calvary Chapel, Rob McCoy's Church, and others here in the People's Republic of California. But it's interesting, though, um, remember, Arthur Pulowski had been arrested a couple of times and jailed a couple of times. As a matter of fact, his last stint in prison uh, he wound up spending 51 days behind bars, and some of it in solitary confinement. The reason he was jailed, you'll recall, is the fact that Canada has strict lockdown policy, no church gatherings, no large gatherings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Everybody has to be vaccinated and wear the mask, blah, 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 blah. Now, what's interesting about Arthur Pulowski's church is that they did comply, from what I understand, with some of the distancing and masking and stuff like that to stop the spread. But the crowd size, you know, there were a lot of inconsistencies as regard to that. Well, you remember how that went, how like in New York, for example, the Archdiocese of Brooklyn was complaining about the fact that businesses in Brooklyn could be open be at 50% capacity, they could be open 10, 12 hours a day as long as they had indoor-outdoor options for seating. But the churches there could not be open more than a certain period of time. They could only be at 10% capacity. And, you know, the, the, the issue of uh, you, the of the indoor-outdoor option, it, it was just, it was a lot of inconsistency. And that's eventually, please, please understand this. Eventually, where the churches were able to be successful with the courts was speaking to the legal aspect and not the emotional or spiritual aspect. And I know a couple of days ago, we had a rather uh, spirited call-in uh, segment here on the Bottom Line Show uh, about the issue of whether or not Donald Trump would be uh, nominated if he would wanted to run, and if he did, would people vote for him? And 80% of young people at the Turning Point USA conference said that they would. And uh, I then suggested that maybe it might be a, a, a situation, you know, for people like you and me to say, well, maybe it's time for somebody else to do this. And, you know, it's amazing how if you put it that way, people go, well, I, I'll think about it. But when I just flat out told you, I said, if Donald Trump's on the ballot, I'm not voting for him. And all of a sudden, wait, hold on a second. Wait a minute. You know, what's going on here? And there was a lot of passion. There was a lot of emotion. And I appreciate that passion and emotion. I really do. But something we as conservatives need to do if we're going to have more success in the political realm, uh, in the cultural realm or whatever, is we have to start looking and acting and thinking like the world does. Not that we need to be worldly, but we just need to understand where they are coming from. It was pretty obvious to most of us once people like California Governor Gavin Mussolini uh, started shutting down worship services and things of that nature, that the left holds the religious community in contempt. And I mean, it Pierre, uh, Pierre, Justin Trudeau, same thing in Canada. Everybody can get together for a Black Lives Matter, Mal, Ra, Black Lives Matter rally, but you can't go to church. Well, because it's about time we had these rallies. And again, I'm not suggesting that people shouldn't stand up to express their opinions and talk about rights and you know uh, atrocities that are being committed against other people. At the same time, though, can we get a little bit of uh, balance here, Mr. Governor? Why is it that 100 people in a church is dangerous and 20,000 people in downtown Los Angeles near Parker Center isn't? I mean, the, the inconsistencies are pretty staggering. And Arthur Pulowski was calling him out on this. He said, look, you're holding an illegal public gathering. Uh, we have provincial restrictions here on large gatherings uh, during the pandemic. And, and quite frankly, we, we don't like what you're doing. In other words, we don't like the fact that you're still holding church services. Well, 
The good news for Arthur Pulowski is he and his brother were actually brought up on these charges. The charges in this case were contempt of court. They were being held on contempt of court charges because they didn't want to answer the charges that they were violating this, you know, emergency court order, et cetera, et cetera. And they went ahead and stood their ground. And now a Canadian court has ruled in favor of Pastor Arthur Pulowski and the contempt of court charge has been dismissed. Sarah Miller is the lawyer for Pastor Pulowski of Street Church in the Cave of Adullam in Calgary. And she announced in a tweet that the Alberta Court of Appeal uh, had issued a quote-unquote slam dunk win. Here's what she wrote. The Court of Appeal made a unanimous sound decision and overturned the finding of contempt against my client. It's a unanimous ruling from the three-judge panel. This is similar to what we have here in the States, of course. The Circuit Court of Appeals are 12 different circuits all throughout the country, and they have a three-judge panel, and then the larger court is like 12 or 13 judges. But the three-judge panel, they'll have a a ruling so they don't have to drag down the full court with their um, with their you know taking their time to dick on this basically Arthur Pulaski and his brother Dawood were held in contempt of court for holding an illegal public gathering in violation of Alberta's provincial restrictions on large gatherings that was imposed during the coronavirus pandemic the finding of contempt and the sanction order are set aside the decision declared the fines that have been paid to them must be reimbursed Arthur Pulowski said, um, I was speechless. I mean, total vindication. I had actually lost hope in the justice system. Uh, the Alberta Court of Appeal also considered a request from restaurant owner Christopher Scott to overturn a lower court order requiring him to pay a fine of $20,000 and court costs of 10922 bucks. The Court of Appeals decided to cut his fine in half. It's funny because when Arthur Pulowski was asked if he had to do it all over again, would he change his behavior? And his behavior was he kept his church open. He allowed worshipers to come and worship the Lord. It's Hebrews uh, 10.25, let us not give up meeting together as many are wont to do. He did. That was my paraphrase of Hebrews 10.25. There were a lot of churches who cowered in fear and said, we're not going to meet because we don't want to violate state standards and health guidelines and, oh, this is so dangerous. Guys, what we've been saying for the past two years is that it was called a pandemic. It turned out to be more of an endemic, which just means a lot of people are going to get it. At some point, everyone's going to get it. And you have to determine which is better for you, natural immunity from just getting it and living through it or taking the vaccine and the second vaccine and the booster and the booster and knowing that it won't have nearly the same effect as the natural immunity, but hopefully it should work. And I've talked to so many people who've had every scenario possible one jab johnson and johnson two jabs pfizer and two boosters no jabs at all natural immunity and every one of these people i just described to you they're all family members and they're all doing great so praise god that they are i'm grateful for the good health that they've had i'm glad that i have the natural immunity now and uh as does my wife but it's interesting because the Alberta Court of Appeal had overturned a lower court ruling that required uh, Arthur Pulowski to issue an addendum every time he criticized the government's coronavirus restrictions. See, that's another, this is where the Nazi part comes in. Um, Arthur Pulowski, Pastor Tim Stevens of Calgary, and James Coates of Edmonton also found themselves subjected to jail time. But remember, James Coates was here with me on the Bottom Line show not too long ago, talking about the fact that these guys were not doing this to make a stink. They really weren't. I mean, the idea was they wanted to be faithful to the crown of the King of Kings, not of the ruling Lords of Canada. And we're going to see more of this type of activity taking place in civilized society. Remember, before Roe versus Wade was overturned, the United States was one of only four nations that allowed abortion right up until birth. And those nations are not the kind of nations, well, two of them are nations that you would never think the U.S. wanted to be associated with, and that was China and North Korea. The U.S. was third, but the fourth nation that allows abortion on demand, without apology, with no explanation needed, right up until labor and delivery, is Canada. Don't let the friendly Canuck, Maple Leaf type of thing fool you with what's going on right now. Canada's being ruled by tyrants. And the fact that Arthur Pulowski stood up to them is, it's, it's just so gratifying. 
more than anything else. And we've got a link for this article up at thebottomlineshow.com. Remember back in, well, I guess it was two months ago, three months ago now, first part of May, when the uh, the pre- uh, premature decision, if you will, regarding the overturning of Roe versus Wade by upholding Dobbs versus Jackson in Mississippi, when that was first leaked to the press, there was a question as to who might have leaked it, but what was the purpose of leaking it? Uh, I've seen a couple of fairly credible sources of late who said that it was actually Justice Elena Kagan who is responsible for letting that go. Well, regardless of who did this, um, we heard of the gloom and doom, women being denied access to health care. We saw all the T-shirts, you know, uh, women today are born with fewer rights than their grandmothers were, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it's led us into an interesting season of time where the feminist community and the leftist community really doesn't know what to do because the thought is, well, abortion is birth control. So if you get pregnant and you don't want to have, you know, the, the pregnancy, you should be able to have practice, quote unquote, birth control and reproductive health. And if not, well, why do guys get to still be able to father children if women are not allowed to kill their babies in the womb? It's a, it's a ridiculous argument. It doesn't make any sense. Coming analysis, balance, and clarity of the whole shot. On the other side of this break, though, I want to talk about a story in the Washington Post that recently kind of showed the lunacy and the desperation of the left in terms of coming up with what appears to be a false equivalency as to, oh, yeah, well, if you took away Roe versus Wade, well, well, we're going to we're going to do something that'll make make you uncomfortable, too. Are you ready for an increase in vasectomies among young men because Roe versus Wade is no more? We'll talk about this on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. By investing in the Wilson Financial Services 4D or four-dimensional account, your investment is guaranteed against loss. It provides long-term care benefits, permanent income benefits, and inflation benefits all at the same time. You know, I had a client come in this morning, and the first thing he asked me was, tell me about 4D money. I said, you've got an account right now that's one-dimensional. It's paying you 6% for the next three years, and that's the one dimension it has. I said, 4D money has four dimensions. It'll pay you 4 to 6% a year, but has three additional dimensions. Number one, it'll provide you with long-term care benefits. Number two, it'll provide you with permanent income benefits. And number three, it'll provide you with inflation benefits, all under the heading of 4D money. So when I explain these things to people, they say, well, you know, that sounds too good to be true. I said, I know, but we have got millions and millions of dollars of clients' money in these accounts, and it's in black and white. It's true. Ask Dennis Wilson and his team at Wilson Financial Services to explain the four dimensions of their 4D account. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970 for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. Parental discretion is advised for this next segment here because there's a big concern on the left that since Roe versus Wade is overturned and women no longer have reproductive justice, et cetera, et cetera, what you're going to see now is more young men taking a very drastic step. Now, in states that passed what were called very restrictive abortion laws, it was very in vogue a few years ago for feminists to propose uh, similar what they could call punitive uh, legislation. And that similar punitive legislation would be like, oh yeah, well, if a woman can't get an abortion here, then a man has to get a vasectomy. And the logic, and I say that in air quotes, was that if a woman did not have full autonomy over her body, in other words, I'll use birth control, I will go out and have sex with whoever I want to, and once I have those relations, if I get pregnant, then I will, uh, I'll just take care of it. That gives me autonomy. I get to say everything happens to my body. Now, you and I both know that God's plan for sex and sexuality was he created male and female. That's it. Um, perfect expression of God's love for us and for each other in the consummation of that relationship through holy matrimony. And you do it to grow deeper spiritually, grow deeper emotionally. And oh, by the way, it feels good. And oh, by the way, um, it can also produce children. God's very clever like that. Not to be clever, but I mean, just look at all the benefits of having physical intimacy with your spouse. But of course, our culture gets in there and says, well, we like the fun part. We used to like the responsibility part. And so a lot of people have pushed for, you know, what they call reproductive justice, 
simply because, well, if you can't have an abortion, you can't have sex without any, worrying about any consequences. And so a lot of bills would be passed. Well, if you're going to restrict a woman's access to an abortion, then the man has to get a vasectomy. Seems a little extreme, doesn't it? That you would go into the vast deference and make the little decision and then tie off both sides. And therefore now, guess what? Dad can't fire any, uh, you know, by those guys in there. No more swimmers and no more fertilization. And there you go. Well, that does seem like a drastic measure, doesn't it? But to feminists, to leftists, that's tit for tat. Quid pro quo, whatever you want to call it. So we've seen this, you know, as Roe versus Wade's getting it overturned. Well, then for every man has to have a vasectomy because, you know, well, that's just not fair to women. Because we still want to continue to have the fun part without the responsibility part. But let's make sure 16-year-olds can vote, right? I mean, this is the same party whose thought process is so inconsistent. But leftists were preaching this for the past 90 days and once Roe versus Wade was overturned with the passage of Dobbs versus Jackson, according to the Washington Post, doctors across the country are seeing a huge spike in requests for vasectomies. And the largest demographic of people seeking this procedure are young men under the age of 30. Now, I'm going to stop right here for just a moment. I realize for those who are of the woke community, the fact that I just said only men can have vasectomies might have offended you. And I'm sorry you're offended, but only men can have vasectomies. There's absolutely physically no way a woman who tries to contort her body into a masculine form will ever need a vasectomy. Full stop. Now, I know it's not politically correct to say that, and that we have to start using terms like birthing parents and, and, and impregnating parents or whatever. But the reality is, until an actual transgender person transfers from female to male and then starts producing testosterone naturally, not the testosterone they have to keep getting injected in their bodies for the rest of their lives, and can do the full function and actually produce that kind of result... Only men need vasectomies. But look at these young guys who are freaking out. Their girlfriends are saying, if you don't get snipped, I, well, 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 wait a minute. You're, I mean, I know they can be reversed, but do you mean honestly to tell me that the, this is the way they respond? Not let's think responsibly about this. Not let's sit down and plan for the family. Not let's, oh, okay, what's my responsibility in all this? Instead, it's, well, if I can't get an abortion, then you have to get a vasectomy. What in the ever-loving? This is per the Washington Post. A Florida urologist said that they've seen a 300% increase in the number of vasectomies. Doctors in L.A. reporting a 300 to 400% increase. A Missouri-based urologist said, we are up 900% in the number of people requesting vasectomy consultations. And you know what's really crazy is the Cleveland Clinic, I can't even do this math, let's see. It's like 20,000% at the Cleveland Clinic. So what does that mean in real numbers? Here's a quote from uh, the uh, Austin Urology Institute of Texas. We had 400 phone calls come to our office just this past Friday. 70 occurring over just a one-hour period immediately after Roe versus Wade passed. We had a record number of bookings and requests for vasectomies. There's an interview with uh, uh, Dr. Kahushik Shah, MD, talking about the number of vasectomies that are going up. Iowa-based urologists, 200 to 250% increase in traffic. The list goes on. But how many people does that actually refer to? I mentioned that in uh, Florida, for example, the number of vasectomy requests had jumped by 300%. Do you know what that means? And I mean this sincerely. They are currently getting 12 to 18 requests per day. It used to be four or five. Los Angeles... 300 to 400% increase in vasectomies. Uh, Well, what is 900%? 
300, 400%. If you were getting three calls a day for vasectomies and vasectomy consultations and your increase 300%, you would now be getting nine calls a day. But these are predominantly guys under the age of 30 who are so whipped by the culture. They can't think for themselves. They can't stand up for themselves. They honestly have been taught. They've been led to believe that the best thing they can do to protect the women in their lives is to get vasectomies before they ever have a shot at being parents. And more specifically, being fathers. But this is what wokeism does. It basically, what's the old expression, cut off your nose to spite your face? It takes the most drastic measure you could possibly get and says, this is the gold standard now. You have to do it. If you want to be, all the cool guys are, you know, snip, snip, or whatever the procedure entails these days. Amazing. But what does it tell us about the culture? And what kind of influence are we in the church having on young people who have this kind of European idea that this is the hip way to go? We'll talk about that on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Stephanie Cover of Cover Law has a reputation for excellence, not just among previous clients, but also among colleagues. I'm an attorney. I've had clients that have issues in the area that Stephanie works in, and she's my first referral source. First of all, the area that she works in is an area where it's not that easy to find attorneys that I feel comfortable with. I think she has a lot of empathy, which helps because sometimes we attorneys don't have as much as we should have. She's extremely detail-oriented. She's very conscientious and just does a really kind of exceptional, almost overboard job in, in preparing cases. I've never had anybody come back with any negative comments. Everybody's been very happy with, you know, her professionalism and the way that she approaches cases. Choose the personal injury attorney with personal integrity. Stephanie Cover of Cover Law, 877-214-4935. Here we go. Welcome back to this analysis, balance, and clarity segment of the bottom line show. I'm Roger Marshall, just chuckling. Um, Chuckling because this is what leftism and wokeism does to young impressionable minds roe versus wade was overturned as the dobbs versus jackson decision in mississippi uh, was affirmed by the supreme court on june 24th 2022 so now we have two landmark days with regard to abortion in the united states 22nd of january 1973 the day roe versus wade was uh, basically declared to be constitutional by the then supreme court and the 24th of june 2022 um, I said 1973 for Roe, right? Okay. 2022, the day that Roe was overturned, this issue is returned back to the states where it should have been in the first place. And uh, with 49 and a half years, more than 65 million unborn children that will never meet the side of heaven, but we will meet in heaven one day. And um, all the mental, emotional anguish, physical challenges that women have had, the number of women who've had abortions, who then weren't able to get pregnant again or had ectopic pregnancies, it's just awful. But you've got a whole generation of young women now, especially millennials and Generation Z, who have been taught two things. First, that their rights have been ripped away from them. Foundational, fundamental rights, a huge Supreme Court overreach. And secondly, that if they don't have abortion, they can't really survive. And so now they're turning to young men saying, it's up to you guys. I mean, may I? It would be the equivalent of asking a young woman, okay, well, why aren't you going to get a hysterectomy then? I mean, if you want to be completely free from the potential that having sexual relations might lead to pregnancy, just have a hysterectomy. Just everything's gone. No worries now. Do whatever you want to. Never mind the fact that that will bring on early onset menopause and your desire will go down to have physical activity like that. But it's amazing. Now, granted, 26 states still have access to abortion. The abortion pill, the so-called medical abortion, is still legal in a lot of places, and there are states that are completely abortion-free, or so they claim, that actually have left provisions for women to purchase these pills through telemed operations and online. A lot of people buy medications online these days, and they could still conceivably do the abortion themselves at home using the pill. So, I mean, we did not eliminate abortion by overturning Roe versus Wade any more than 
President Trump getting rid of the uh, 60 or so million dollars for Title X funding uh, got rid of uh, federal funding of Planned Parenthood. But please understand, there are those in our midst right now who would say, oh, gosh, I should have a vasectomy because, well, it's a lot easier for a guy than a girl to do that. And, you know, I mean, shoot, I mean, uh, just, I want to do my part and I want to overpopulate the planet, blah, blah, blippity, blah. And that's where we go. Isn't that a head scratch? <laughs> my goodness, but that is where we live in this culture when we're thinking with values that aren't biblical, when we're trying to be super European. You know, one of the best ways I know to counteract that type of mentality is to talk to somebody who grew up that way and see what kind of values they have. How about my now good friend, Dr. Uh, Guillaume Bignon? He grew up in the Catholic Church, but for many years lived as a a highly educated, supremely intelligent uh, atheist. Did not believe in God, did not believe in, uh, you know, organized religion. He was doing just fine, had a great paying job, a good career with lots of uh, respect. And it was on holiday, he and his brother were in the Caribbean, that they met a couple of women who they found very attractive. One of them was an American actress from New York. He struck up a conversation with her, tried to put on all the moves. And when he did, she basically shut him down, not completely out, but shut him down with the simple line that she said, I believe in God, I'm a Christian, and I am saving sexual intimacy for marriage. Well, that blew this guy's mind. And Guillaume Bignon said, hey, wait a minute. I mean, I, I've got intellect. I've got reason. I'll, I'll show you what you're wrong. And next thing you know, he's a married father of five who loves the Lord and has become a, uh, a Christian apologist. He's written a book about his journey. It's called Confessions of a French Atheist, How God Hijacked My Quest to Disprove the Christian Faith. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and we'll be giving away a copy on the other side of this break. Uh, join me, if you will, in uh, welcoming Dr. Guillaume Bignon to have a great conversation. That's coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. You've heard this story before. Maybe there's someone in your family who says, I'm an atheist, I'm an agnostic, I don't need your Christianity, I don't need your Christian faith, I'm doing just fine, I'm having a perfectly good life on my own. Well, my guest today here on The Bottom Line would say that for the first several years of his life, that's in fact what he was experiencing. Uh, Guillaume Bignon was a French atheist, perfectly happy, successful software engineer, he worked in the financial world, Uh, he was kind of a renaissance man, musician, volleyball player, whatever. And yet he had an experience that many of us young American guys can relate to with regarding a member of the opposite sex that actually led him into faith in Jesus Christ. He's written an outstanding book about it called Confessions of a French Atheist, How God Hijacked My Quest to Disprove the Christian Faith. And the book is just now out. We have a link for it up at thebottomlineshow.com. Dr. Guillaume Bignon, welcome to The Bottom Line Show. Thank you very much for having me. You know, whenever I hear guys talk about, or men in particular, talk about their Christian faith, oftentimes the the confession goes like this. There was this girl, and uh, that's partly where you were too in terms of uh, an encounter with an attractive woman that led you now into uh, your career with a master's in biblical literature, emphasis New Testament, PhD in philosophical theology. But people who knew you a few years ago might say, I never would have pegged this guy for that kind of career. Tell us what it was like growing up as, a, as you described yourself, a French atheist. Yeah, so I, I grew up in uh, in France, obviously. Uh, I uh, grew up in a fairly good, uh, loving family. Um, at the time, we were uh, nominally Roman Catholic, so we were still practicing, going to Mass, uh, but it never felt really like a very sincere conviction. It didn't seem like we had a very vibrant uh, connection with God. It was more mm-hmm. of a tradition and maybe a little bit of superstition. Um, so I did uh, I, enough involvement to uh, develop some resentment towards those practices because I felt I was wasting my time. Um, but as, so, as soon as I was old enough to tell my parents that I didn't believe any of this, then I, I simply stopped going to Mass, and I lived my life as an atheist, uh, living as if there is no God and uh, not looking back and certainly not hoping that religion would make any sort of a comeback. So what happened? I mean, obviously there's the change. And this is a common tale for a lot of people. I mean, you grew up in the church. You get to be of age, maybe college, young adulthood. You got a career. Things are working. You don't, quote unquote, need God in your life anymore. What was the event that kind of led you, or as you describe it, that hijacked your your atheism and said, hey, I got to find out if this Christianity is, is for real? 
Yeah, so the, the event, uh, it's a, basically a series of very improbable events, and I described this uh, this story in the, the book Confessions of a French Atheist. So no, without uh, ruining all the plot points, essentially, uh, I went on a vacation in the Caribbean uh, with my brother, uh, and then uh, there was a, a, a day where we needed to come back from a distant beach and didn't have a car, and we decided to hitchhike uh, back to our place. And uh, this is a, a chance uh, meeting of uh, two American tourists who stopped, and they were not even stopping to pick us up. They were stopping to ask for directions to their hotel. Uh, they were on their way from the airport to their hotel. And as it turns out, they were their hotel was next door to the place we were staying at. Mm. And so we made the deal that uh, we'll tell you where it is if you bring us there. So uh, we jumped in, and uh, I was immediately attracted to one of them uh, who was from New York. Uh, was a former actress and model, very exotic to me, and uh, we ended up striking a, a relationship on the island. And um, I very, I mean, I was uh, curious to see where this would lead. Um, but uh, she very soon confessed that she was uh, uh, that she believed that God exists, which at the time I thought was intellectual suicide. Mm-hmm. And uh, attached to that belief was also the idea that uh, there should be abstinence before marriage, which was even crazier by my own mm. standards, if that was even possible. Right. So this was a, a very problematic relationship that was starting <laughs> there, but it was the whole thing was uh, romantic and uh, exciting and exotic. And so I still was motivated to somehow make it work, and I figured those problems would take care of themselves. So that's, uh, that's how I was reconfirmed with the question of God and needed to explain to her why all of this is nonsense, why she needs to leave this behind so that we could be happy together. That, that was the idea. Well, I, it, and it's a fun, interesting idea. Looking back on it now, uh, Dr. Guillaume Bignon is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. Do not try to spell his name. We've got the link up at thebottomlineshow.com. If you want to Google it, it'll take me a little while to, to, to pound it all out for you. But I find it very interesting, uh, Dr. Bignon, especially when you consider that Lee Strobel wrote the foreword to your book, Confessions of a French Atheist, how God hijacked my quest to disprove the Christian faith, because Lee Strobel knows all about that, you know, in terms of, you know, there was this woman in his life, his wife, Leslie, uh, be, be having a conversion experience, and then Lee going on the offensive to actually try to disprove the Christian faith. Uh, talk about the steps that you took. I mean, you did have a, a certain basis, at least in the Catholic Church, but here's this beautiful uh, New York-based model who says, oh, by the way, I believe in God, I believe in abstinence before marriage, and you're thinking, oh, silly girl, I'm going to let me set you straight here. What was that like for you looking back? Now, I'm sure there might be a couple of chuckles every now and again when you think about that. Yeah, obviously, but looking back, this is where the story is funny, and this is what part of the motivation for writing in the book because it's it's highly entertaining, all well, aside from the ministry value. Yeah. Um, but so I I went and uh, figured that at least if I were going to be speaking meaningfully about this, I, I needed to understand what she even believed. So uh, this was one of the first steps after I. Uh, flew back to Paris and she flew back to New York and here we were in a problematic long-distance relationship. I simply picked up the Bible and started to read the New Testament to get a sense of what those Christians actually believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was the, the, the first step that led me to uh, thinking about those issues. And there I, I uh, read the, the Gospels and uh, was put face-to-face with the person of Jesus and it, it felt very different than what I an- anticipated. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was expecting the, the whole text to be extremely boring, like I remembered from my childhood. Right. Mm-hmm. And on the contrary, I found Jesus was a very gripping character, uh, really exciting, uh, just conversations. He navigated through tough conversations, was very smart, had to quick comeback. So uh, a very compelling character that really captured my uh, imagination. Um, and, and at the time, I also believed that Jesus was uh, at least a real historical person. I, I never really bought into the, the denial that somehow Jesus uh, didn't exist. Um, so I, I figured that uh, I needed to, to take at least at face value the claims about him and try to make my own idea about who I thought that he was uh, and who I, what I thought happened uh, surrounding the claims that he was crucified and then that somehow his disciples saw him alive after his death. So these were some of the questions that were starting to arise in my my rereading of the New Testament like this, a very unexpected route uh, to take. You know, it's interesting, Dr. Guillaume Bignon is my guest today here on The Bottom Line, and we're discussing his new book called Confessions of a French Atheist, How God Hijacked My Quest to Disprove the Christian Faith, which is up to thebottomlineshow.com. It's interesting with your your work at that time, Dr. Bignon, uh, in the financial world, dealing with numbers, dealing with tangibles, you know, real uh, things that are provable and uh, and immutable 
the fact that here you are now taking a step of faith to believe in the not only the historical Jesus, but the you know uh, Jesus the deity, you know, and and moving past uh, what might have seemed during your atheistic years as just well that's just a myth, you know, or maybe that's kind of a a nice story. At what point you you have a chapter in your book called Searching for Certainty? At what point did you did it begin to crystallize with you? You know, talk about what that experience was like. Yeah, so the, again, those crew, lots of travels and meetings. Uh, I ended up really spending quite a bit of time thinking about the, the various claims that, that I was reading in the New Testament and uh, resolving uh, slowly by step by step uh, many of the intellectual objections that I had against the belief in God and in the supernatural. So in the book, I discuss uh, the various philosophical questions that arose during that period. Um, when I speak of searching for certainty, it's an expectation I had at the time that somehow if somebody was going to be justified in believing in God um, and in the truth of Christianity, that they should have certainty, that uh, you couldn't just leave it to blind faith. Right? Yeah. Um, and I eventually uh, realized that the standard of absolute certainty was actually completely unreasonable, that there yeah. are tons of things that we know in life, and I'm not saying like, believe or just have blind faith, but things that we do know in life for which we don't have that level of absolute certainty. There's actually very little that we know with undeniable certainty. And yet we're fully irrational to claim that we know some of those things. Uh, I know my date of birth. I know my name. I know who my parents are. All of those things, I don't have absolute certainty. The way that I know those things is because somebody who knew told me. So somebody reliably informed me of those things, and I took their testimony as reasonable enough that I can know that those things are true. And so in my uh, reading of the New Testament, I similarly came to see the uh, four Gospels uh, from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as being four people who had either experienced or investigated the events surrounding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and basically wrote down those things to tell us. This is testimony. Mm. This is, we have seen those things, and we are writing them down to tell you because we think it's very important. And those, uh, those writers pretty much have phrased things exactly along those terms. Um, and, I, and I came to appreciate that uh, that would be sufficient for a testimony that's historical, an historically reliable testimony was one way of knowing things, not just blindly believing. Uh, mm. So that was a major intellectual shift in my thinking at the time. What a great uh, testimony it is, and I, I highly recommend this book from Dr. Guillaume Bignon. Uh, the book is called Confessions of a French Atheist, How God Hijacked My Quest to Disprove the Christian Faith. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. As we continue, we'll talk about how we got to where he is today. We're having a conversation uh, here in the U.S., just over the telephone, and and what is happening in the life and ministry of Dr. Guillaume Bignon, uh, the idea that... Uh, his testimony has been so remarkable, and yet there are others who have had similar experiences. As a matter of fact, there's a whole association of French-speaking Christian scholars um, who are having a huge impact for the gospel all over the world. More of my conversation with Dr. Guillaume Bignon in just a moment as The Bottom Line continues. Mm -hmm. Dr. Guillaume Bignon is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh, and I must make a confession that uh, he is the only only French scholar I've ever had on the Bottom Line Show. I mean, I, and I don't, not that we don't want French scholars on. Uh, he's an executive committee member of Association Axiom, I hope I didn't butcher that too badly, uh, which is a society of French-speaking Christian scholars. That when he's not uh, doing his quote-unquote day job as a software engineering manager. But Dr. Bignon has a fascinating testimony that he writes about in his new book called Confessions of a French Atheist, How God Hijacked My Quest to Disprove the Christian Faith. The forward is by Lee Strobel, a link for the book up at the bottom show.com And Dr. Bignon, as we were talking before the break, uh, you do have kind of a Lee Strobel quality that he writes about in the case for Christianity, uh, the idea that you were basically an atheist, you'd grown up in the church, you meet you and your, uh, was it your brother, your cousin, you were on holiday and you met these two women and you were attracted to one, she was a Christian, and next thing you know, you're on this quest to try to disprove Christianity. Where was the, the, the pivot point? Where was the moment where you said, you know, okay, the gospel makes sense to me now. God really revealed himself to me. Yeah, so after this period of investigation and thinking about the big objections that I had and seeing them resolved intellectually one after another, 
I started to uh, come to intellectually appreciate the plausibility of Christianity. I figured that this makes sense, and this is tentatively something that one can know about uh, from the historical record that we have in the New Testament. So the intellectual side was starting to come into place. But, uh, I mean, as a Christian, we believe that, uh, obviously, believing that God exists and that Jesus was raised from the dead is necessary to be a Christian. Uh, but we wouldn't say it's sufficient, right? The Bible puts it in very funny terms when it says that even the demons believe and yet they shudder. Um, so there's clearly a change of heart that also needs to happen. And so my uh, the, the intellectual appreciation for the Christian truth uh, became real when the message of the gospel hit me and uh, ultimately changed my heart as much as it changed my mind. And this was when I was reading the New Testament and starting to um, wonder, could this be true? Uh, there was a, a hope that God would uh, make it very explicit, uh, that, you know, I, I started to pray still as a, as a semi-unbeliever. Um, God, I'm starting to think that maybe you're out there, so why don't you go ahead and reveal yourself to me very explicitly mm-hmm. so that I wouldn't just um, you know, convert on the whim and then make a fool of myself. Uh, I wanted some some tangibility, um, and uh, you know maybe I was hoping for some sort of a voice coming from the sky, a welcome son, uh, sure. something uh, theatrical like that. Uh-huh. And what uh, God did instead is that He reactivated my conscience, uh-huh. uh, and uh, there was some really atrocious things that I had come to do at the same time that I was investigating the truth of Christianity, uh, things that I. Uh, I was very not proud of, and I was denying, uh, so I was lying to people and to myself, and kind of suppressing this uh, in the back of my mind. Um, and then in the in the midst of this uh, search for God, uh, somehow this my con- conscience was reactivated, and this uh, thing that I had done was just shoved in my face, and I couldn't think about anything else, and I was afflicted with guilt. Um, and it's in that zone of pain um, that finally the message of the Christian gospel that I had been reading about finally clicked and made sense to me. And now the the message of Jesus dying on the cross finally took color because I was able to answer, why did Jesus have to die? Which is a question that had resisted my understanding so far. And I I came to realize, well, that's why he had to die, me. And so it it became very personal that the message of the Christian faith was Jesus dies on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And we, therefore, are not um, forgiven for our sins by um, doing good works uh, or by our own righteousness, but simply by receiving his gift uh, by faith in Jesus. So that the the message of the Christian faith ultimately is we are saved by faith and not by good works. I had never heard anything like this in the many years on the benches of Mm -hmm. the church in my childhood. And reading it and experiencing it uh, finally made sense to me, and I embraced it. So I, I, um, in this zone of pain, out of guilt, I finally reached out to God and said, that message makes sense. I come to appreciate its credibility intellectually, and now I get to live it experientially. God, forgive me. I trust in you. I accept that forgive. Give me this uh, forgiveness that you promised. And I experienced a a spiritual renewal, a real rebirth, uh, as the Bible describes it, where my guilt evaporated. And I I rejoiced that I had come to encounter the living God who had forgiven me of my sins. Very powerful experience. And this was really the, the turning point for me to actually be a Christian. Absolutely. And Dr. Guillaume Bignon has written about his journey in a brand new book called Confessions of a French Atheist, How God Hijacked My Quest to Disprove the Christian Faith. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. He then went on to earn a master's in biblical literature with an emphasis on New Testament, has a Ph.D. in philosophical theology. Uh, Talk about your ministry today, Dr. Bignon. Obviously, uh, things have have uh, progressed nicely with a, a wife and uh, many children who I, I'm told are all very adorable. I, I, I say that very carefully just because we live in the modern era where people can take things out of, you know, misconstrue them. So I, I want to make sure that, that we're on the same page as far as that goes. But you, you have a, a real heart for apologetics and, and ministry in that regard, you know, providing the explanation, you know, answering those who uh, would question just as you did too. talk about uh, why discovering apologetics was so important to you and, really ostensibly should be important to each of us in the faith as well. Yeah, so apologetics is the rational defense of the Christian faith. So it's uh, it's interested in defending a number of the important truth claims of the Christian faith. Uh, and the reason I, I came to value it so much is simply that uh, in considering Christianity, 
there was an extremely strong blocking point for me, which was the intellectual credibility. I was extremely scared to commit intellectual suicide if I were to become a Christian. And it was important to resolve the intellectual objections that I had in my mind. So uh, the ones that I was struggling with were not very uh, unusual, uh, but there were also others that exist. And I really have a hope to uh, equip people to uh, be able to resolve those intellectual objections and to give really a solid consideration to the truth of the Christian faith. So um, this is what I try to achieve in the book. Uh, as I tell my story, which you know is just uh, entertaining with stories of travels and betrayals and improbable meetings, I also try to pepper it with the apologetic material uh, that pertains to the big questions that I raised as part of my uh, coming to faith and try to equip the reader to answer some of those objections. So you, you said that you haven't had any uh, French scholars so far on uh, on your show, and I don't blame you because typically the French uh, philosophers tend to be atheists. So <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, I, I do uh, interact with them quite a bit, so it, it gives kind of a French flavor to the philosophy that's in this book. Uh, I interact with the, the Luc Ferry and Voltaire and the uh, Jacques Monod and Michel Onfray, so the, the French atheist philosophers uh, who bring plenty of objections against the Christian faith. And so in conversation with them, I deal with those objections and offer reasons for believing that God exists and that uh, the uh, stories in the New Testament are reliable uh, and that we can know the truth about the death and resurrection of Jesus. So that's the the place of apologetics in there. Now, I, I don't say that it's all of it, right, because clearly right. Uh, conversion more than an intellectual change of mind, but it's a very essential part of it, and I'm hoping to equip the reader with that. Absolutely. Well, the book, Confessions of a French Atheist, How God Hijacked My Quest to Disprove the Christian Faith, is a huge resource, a very helpful one is that, uh, written by Dr. Guillaume Bignon. Uh, we've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. We've got about 60 seconds left in our conversation, Dr. Bignon, and I'd love for you to, to address an issue I think that oftentimes we in the West often forget, and that is we look at Europe, we look at other parts of the world and the, the tendency is to think, well, gosh, you know, uh, less than, you know, half of a percent of Japan is converted to Christianity or you know, we don't think of Spain or, you know, or France or being places of hotbed, hotbeds of Christian uh, activity. And yet you have a different perspective, obviously, being a part of uh, uh, the Association Axiom and, and working with French Christian scholars. Give us an, an encouraging word about what's happening, say, for example, for the, the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ in places like France. Yeah, so in in such places, it's easy to to feel like we're overwhelmed that uh, there's a, there's no light uh, shining. But uh, <laughs> I would say that the light shines brighter in the darkness. And mm. there's something very encouraging about the fact that uh, the the that God changes hearts. So that uh, in in one sense, it's one of the takeaways of my story is that uh, I'm I was really hostile to any sort of thinking about religion. I really hated the idea of God and, and religious practice. And I wouldn't be the one you would uh, think is very likely to be uh, changed anytime soon. But uh, from biblical grounds, we understand that it's God who changes heart, that no one can come right. to can come to the to the Father and step, uh, and no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them. And God very much is in this business of changing hearts today. So um, my story, if nothing else, is an encouragement that this happens very much so under God's providence and that it should be encouraging for people to faithfully preach the message of the gospel, which is powerfully uh, affecting their hearer uh, no matter what. That is such an encouraging word and a great way for us to conclude our conversation today here on The Bottom Line Show with Dr. Guillaume Bignon, and I'll, okay, I'll spell it, G-U-I-L-L-A-U-M-E, and then capital B-I-G-N-O-N. That's how you spell the name. But if you don't want to have to Google it, just go to thebottomlineshow.com or rogermarsh.com. And we have the link up there for the brand new book called Confessions of a French Atheist, How God Hijacked My Quest to Disprove the Christian Faith. And, and we are very, very grateful that God did what he did so that you can continue to do what you do. Dr. Guillaume Bignon, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your story with us here on The Bottom Line Show. Really appreciate you, sir. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. What a great conversation with my now new best friend, Dr. Guillaume Bignon. Uh, he's the author of the book, Confessions of a French Atheist, How God Hijacked My Quest to Disprove the Christian Faith. The book is linked up at thebottomlineshow.com, and we have one copy to give away right now. If there's someone in your world who does not believe yet in the Lord as the uh, good news, good shepherd, uh, saving, uh, loving Lord, uh, this will be a great read for them. 
That's the number to get you through to the bottom line. You're going to love this book by Dr. Guillaume Bignon, Confessions of a French Atheist, How God Hijacked My Quest to Disprove the Christian Faith. 800-227-5278. That's the number to get you through to the bottom line. My thanks again to Dr. Guillaume Bignon, uh, who wrote the book, Confessions of a French Atheist, How God Hijacked My Quest to Disprove the Christian Faith. I've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and we're giving away a copy of the book right now at 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. I love what Dr. Bignon, or Bignon said about his faith journey. And the fact that he's very matter-of-factly saying, well, I met this woman and she's very attractive and I'm kind of putting the moves on her. And she tells me that she's saving herself for marriage and that she believes in God and the Bible. And I just said, I'm going to prove you wrong. And I thought, this sounds like Lee Strobel. And I'm glad to see that Lee wrote the uh, forward to this book because he said, you know, it's a compelling spiritual memoir that traces Bignon's fascinating quest for answers to life's most profound questions. And the idea that, this is a guy who grew up with organized religion in the Catholic Church, decided that when he became of age that he would not honor that decision anymore and lived as an atheist, perfectly content to do so. But in this story, he basically grew to believe in God after uh, he had to go through the whole issue of, uh, you know, how do I reconcile the issue between faith and science and the supernatural? Is the Bible reliable? And this is the kind of book that helps you uh, wander through those uh, questions and get the kind of answers that you're really looking for. We've got a link for it up at thebottomlineshow.com and uh, we're giving away a copy right now. Give Teresa a call, 800-227-5278. is the number to get you through to the bottom line. For our KCBC audience, enjoy the rest of your day. Rabbi Schneider and Discovering the Jewish Jesus is coming up next. For those who remain with us on the network, um, we've got a special edition of the National Crawford Roundtable podcast to get to today. Uh, Neil Bourne's not with us for the day. Uh, he'll be back next week. But uh, John Rush, Bob Duco, and yours truly, we're going to talk about the electric car, specifically electric car batteries, what this does for the environment. Are there some benefits? Yes, John is an electric car owner. He really likes his Chevy Bolt or Volt or whatever it is he's driving. Are there some downsides, maybe some unintended consequences that uh, we might be missing? We're, are, we are going to attempt to have a very fair and balanced conversation about the benefits and the potential pitfalls of having an electric car. All right. So if you're an electric car owner and you are passionately pro-electric car, you're going to enjoy this week's National Crawford Roundtable podcast. If you are a skeptic like me about does the help that you get in terms of not burning as many fossil fuels, is it outweighed by all the waste and everything that you've got because the batteries don't recycle and whatever, with this is a good conversation for you as well. It's coming up next, NCR on the bottom line as the bottom line continues.